Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. Um, I will be preaching from the book of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 30, uh, verses 1 to 10. So um, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 172, and if you have another edition, uh, Deuteronomy is the fifth book, so it's uh, at the beginning of your Bible. So uh, as I mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, and I'll read, uh, we'll pray, and then we'll begin. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will, your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can gather together as your people today to hear your word to us. You've been so kind to us, Father, to preserve your word in our language, that we can hear the words of life, that we can hear the way of salvation, that we might turn from our sins and trust in your Son. Father, I pray that you would give us all humble and teachable hearts this morning, and that the, your word would pierce us and change us. We ask all this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is uh, one of the most important books in the Old Testament. The book records Moses' final speeches to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. After leaving the land of Egypt in the Exodus, the Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. During this time, the adult generation who left Egypt died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. The Israelites addressed in this passage in Deuteronomy are the children of the adult generation who died in the wilderness. As you might recall, God established a covenant with the Israelites when he delivered them from Egypt. And this is recorded in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 to 24. And to understand the Bible, it really is necessary to understand covenants. 
uh, Peter Gentry and Steve Wellam, uh, two theologians, they, they say this about covenants. At its most basic, covenant presents God's desire to enter into relationship with men and women created in his image. This is reflected in the repeated covenant refrain, quote, I will be your God and you will be my people. This is taken from Exodus chapter 6, 6 to 8, or Leviticus 26 and so on. Covenant is all about relationship between the creator and his creation, end quote. Uh, in Deuteronomy, the people renewed the covenant with God. So this covenant that was established in Exodus, as I mentioned, was renewed here in Deuteronomy. Uh, and the main features of this covenant were this. There's two things that were really important about this covenant. Number one, God would be the Israelites' God. And the second is this, that the people must obey God's commandments and be his people. They would be his treasured possession. The promised land, the multiplication of the people and the blessings, the nations, were all originally made in the Abrahamic covenant, which is found in the book of Genesis in chapters 12 and 15, uh, 17, and 22. And so we see even at the beginning of Exodus that these promises are already had begun to be uh, uh, fulfilled. The people had multiplied uh, tremendously in the land of Egypt. They were on the, the cusp of the promised land. So we see that God had been faithful to his promises. In this covenant here in Deuteronomy, there were promised blessings for obedience and threatened curses for disobedience. The blessings would set Israel high above all the nations of the earth, according to De Deuteronomy 28.1. And the punishments for disobedience, on the other hand, would, quote, uh, would be, quote, extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting, sicknesses grievous and lasting, Deuteronomy 28.59. So although there were provisions for blessings and curses in this covenant uh, that God made with his people, God's relationship with his people was primarily one of grace. And we know that uh, from many places in the Old Testament, but looking here specifically in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8, Moses says this to the Israelites, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Ten Commandments also begins with a reminder that God had rescued his people before laying out the obligations to him. The Israelites did not earn God's love by their obedience or greatness. In response to God's love, though, the people were to live according to God's ways. Thus, Deuteronomy was written to encourage the people to remember their status as God's chosen people, or sometimes you find this language, God's holy people. In other words, people consecrated to God. And to keep the covenant God made with them at Sinai, which is uh, Horeb in Deuteronomy. So if you see Horeb in Deuteronomy, it's referring to Sinai uh, from Exodus. Their fathers had abandoned God by not trusting his promise to be with them, to provide for them, to fight for them, and to give them the promised land. So you can read about these uh, wanderings and turning away from God in the book of Numbers. And Deuteronomy actually begins in the first four chapters recounting this history of their wandering in the wilderness. And so these were uh, really important uh, for the people to remember that their fathers had turned away from God, but they, they needed to be faithful to the Lord. And so as they were on the edge of the promised land, they needed to recall God's promises so that they could be fortified against fear and walk faithfully with God. In Deuteronomy 28, okay, moving closer to Deuteronomy 30, I want to give a little bit broader background, and then we'll kind of move in uh, more specifically and narrowly to Deuteronomy 30. But in Deuteronomy 28, Moses lays out the blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience. 
God promises to comprehensively bless the people. No facet of their lives would be untouched by God's blessing. They would have many offspring, their business pursuits would flourish, and they would be free from sickness. On the other hand, if they chose to abandon God, they would be comprehensively cursed. The comparative links of the two sections of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28 hint that Moses is not confident in their ability to obey. Um, we find this language even explicitly in Deuteronomy 31 as well. But uh, and earlier in the book, in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 10, verse 16, Moses points out the problem with the people fundamentally is their heart. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, he, he commands them to circumcise their hearts. And as we saw in the reading this morning, which we'll talk about in a moment, God promises to circumcise their hearts for them. Now this morning, as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10, this text is an exhortation and a prophecy. The passage should be understood in light of the blessings and curses of Deuteronomy 28. It should also be understood in light of 29 as well, which concludes with a frightening description of God's judgment. The promised land is cursed and uninhabitable, and the people are scattered among the nations at the end of Deuteronomy 29. And this is also a prophetic uh, speech there. Um, they have received the curses of Deuteronomy 28. However, chapter 30 opens up with an optimistic note. God's blessing would prevail. So although the people experience God's punishment uh, for their sin, that punishment is not the last word. Today's passage is an exhortation uh, for the people uh, to remain faithful to the Lord by keeping his covenant. It's also a prophecy because it tells of a future time when God would decisively save his people by bringing them back to the land, multiplying them more than before, and circumcising their hearts so that they would love and obey him. The main point of this passage is that God will definitively save and bless his people by giving them a heart to obey so that they may live in his presence forever in accordance with his promises. I'll say that one more time. So the main point of the passage is that God will definitively save and bless his people by giving them a heart to obey so that they may live in his presence for forever uh, in accordance with his promises. And throughout uh, these 10 verses that we've read, there is a, a Hebrew root that occurs seven times, and it's really a key to understanding everything that's happening in this passage. And so in the English Standard Version, it's translated either as to return or as again, and it occurs seven times. And we see there's two turnings there. There's the, the turning of the people. So the people turn to God in repentance, and God turns towards his people in mercy. These turnings are the keys to understanding this passage, and consequently will be the two points that we look at this morning to help us grasp the, the main point of the passage. And we'll begin by looking at the first turning, the turning of the people. So in other words, the people repent. So although we do not have time to look deeply at Israelite history this morning, suffice it to say their history was marked by disobedience and unfaithfulness, punctuated with periodic repentance. And we see a testimony of this in uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9, where Nehemiah outlines uh, in broad strokes the Israelites' history. The narratives of Exodus to Deut Deuteronomy also show the people's propensity to sin. In Deuteronomy 31, 27, Moses said this against the people, For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? After the death of Moses, Joshua led the people into the promised land. 
After the death of Joshua, the people quickly turned away from the Lord. According to the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, after Joshua's generation died, quote, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Although there were occasionally periods of repentance and godly leaders such as David or Hezekiah or Josiah, Israel did not serve the Lord exclusively. The trajectory of the nation was away from God. The Lord regularly sent prophets to the people to bring them back to covenant faithfulness, but it was in vain. According to the testimony of 2 Chronicles 36, 15 to 16, quote, the Lord, the God of their father, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. So in other words, the people sinned to such an extent that they were forced into exile. This passage here in Deuteronomy describes a a future repentance when the nation realizes their guilt and turns back to the Lord. The passage doesn't say exactly when this will be. Uh, But uh, the prophets, uh, such as Jeremiah, understood the Israelites' return from exile from Babylon as a partial fulfillment of this promise. But it still awaits a greater fulfillment, as we'll see. Um, this passage, however, clearly teaches us several things about repentance, uh, such as it means turning to the Lord and it means a complete turning. So I want to talk a little bit about the nature of repentance from this passage. Now, the first thing we see is that repentance means it's a return to the Lord your God. Uh, so in this passage, we see that Israelites will turn to the Lord in verse 2 once they recognize their sin. And they turn to the Lord because of God's conviction. The Puritan Thomas Brooks, uh, who uh, incidentally uh, was Charles Spurgeon's favorite Puritan, and so uh, maybe he uh, by default is Crosspoint's favorite Puritan because of our affinity for Spurgeon, Uh, he said this about repentance. True repentance is a gift that is from above, and if the Lord does not give it, man will eternally perish, perish for the want of it. And so the the people uh, recognize their sin, but they don't recognize it of their own accord. The Bible teaches us that uh, we're dead in sin, and unless the Lord works in our hearts, that we will continue in that path of disobedience away from him. But God will one day pierce the people's heart and cause them to recognize that they had turned away from him. And we see that repentance also requires turning to the Lord. So repentance does not mean turning to a location such as the temple or for the Israelites going back to the promised land. That, that's not repentance. The prophets condemned sacrifices offered in a perfunctory or hypocritical way. So it wasn't even performing a, a ritual of repentance that uh, was true repentance in God's eyes. So we see Amos, for example, or Micah and Malachi who condemned these people who would offer up a sacrifice to God without really turning to the Lord from the heart. And in today's terms, it doesn't mean joining a church, for example. Repentance means recognizing one's sin, confessing it to God, and looking to Him for pardon. This passage also does not describe any attempt by the Israelites to minimize their guilt. The people do not make excuses from turning away from God. And they didn't attempt to hide their sin either. It's useless for us to try to conceal sin from God. 
He knows all things and is in all places. It's impossible to deceive him. Instead, the people humbly return to God because that's the only person repentant people can go to. The next thing we see about repentance is that it's with all your heart and with all your soul. And this phrase is mentioned three times in this passage. But, uh, so this phrase, with all your heart and with all your soul, should remind us of earlier occurrences in Deuteronomy, and especially of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And this language also occurs in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where we see that when uh, God circumcises their hearts, that this will be the consequence of that. So this phrase, with all your heart and with all your soul, occurs 13 times in the Bible, nine of which occur in Deuteronomy. So this is a sort of special language for this book. It also occurs once in Joshua and also in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus is quoting uh, from Deuteronomy when he says, what is the greatest commandment? And this is coming from exactly from Deuteronomy. And so in these passages, uh, uh, we understand what God requires of his people, a wholehearted obedience. God should be the chief object of our affections and our intentions. So no matter what we do, we should do it for God's glory. So everything we do should be for God's glory. So in the context of repentance, then, in this passage, we see that true repentance is not half-hearted. We do not come to the Lord seeking to hold on to the sins that necessitated his death on the cross. And a half-hearted repentance is a false repentance. In fact, the prophet Joel told the people to repent from the heart and not superficially. So in Joel chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, he said, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And David says something similar in uh, Psalm 51, 17. David also says that true repentance comes from the heart. There he says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Thus, we should not come to the Lord seeking mercy if we intend to do the things that we must repent from. We must seek mercy from the Lord and, and this is a very important conjunction, and abandon our sins. The next thing we see in this passage about repentance is the fruit of repentance. So we see that the fruit of repentance is obedience to the Lord. Loving God means obeying God. Jesus put it this way in the Gospel of John. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the people in this passage demonstrate their repentance and their love for God by wholeheartedly obeying him. Although Israel had not obeyed the Lord, once the Lord circumcises their hearts, they will obey. Indeed, unless the Lord grants us a new heart, we are unable to obey him. In Jesus' words, we must be born again. Without this, our obedience is, in the words of Martin Luther, nothing more than, quote, a splendid sin. And the reason for that is because these actions are coming from an unregenerate heart. They're coming from a heart that has not been circumcised by the Lord. The people's obedience, then, uh, is the undeniable mark of their forgiveness and new hearts. In the New Testament as well, uh, we see that holiness is the telltale sign of God's people. And as a helpful summary of this section, I will quote from the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, 
which defines repentance in this way. This saving repentance is an evangelical grace, whereby a person being by the Holy Spirit made sensible of the manifold evils of his sin doth by faith in Christ humble himself for it with godly sorrow, detestation of it and self-abhorrency, praying for pardon and strength of grace with a purpose and endeavor by supplies of the Spirit to walk before God unto all well-pleasing in all things. Thus, as a summary, we see that repentance is a gift from the Lord and leads his people to turn from their sin toward him with a desire to honor him in their lives. So before moving on to our next point, it's worthwhile to consider this weighty doctrine of repentance. Are you holding on to any sin this morning? Friend, although sin presents itself as satisfying and harmless, its end is death. Its sweetness is fleeting, and its end is as bitter as wormwood. In the Bible, sin is described as deceitful, and we must not fall prey to its false words. Flee from your sin, knowing that sin will bring you nothing except God's judgment. But flee not from sin to morality. Flee from sin to Christ, who promises to save all those who come to him. The next thing we see here is God's turning. And we see that God uh, turns uh, to pardon and to bless his people. We now turn to the second key to understanding today's passage, God's mercy for the repentant. Throughout the scriptures, God is described as merciful. Uh, We see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Chronicles, Nehemiah, really from Genesis to Revelation. We see God's mercy in this description of the Lord. The people's repentance is the work of God's mercy, as we saw in the previous section, since the Lord alone can grant repentance. But God's mercy also expresses itself in pardoning the people's sin and blessing the people. And there are four things that we should see about God's mercy in this passage. The first thing that we should see is the basis of God's mercy. The phrase, your fathers, in verse 5, points us to the basis of God's mercy. God's mercy originates in himself. He loves to lavish his love on his people, and he delights in doing good to his people. God chose his people and promised to be their God. Recall Genesis 12, which we mentioned earlier in the context of the Abrahamic covenant. There, God appeared to Abraham, or at that time, Abram. At that time, according to Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, Abraham and his family, quote, served other gods. And at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God reminds the people that he rescued them from Egypt in accordance with the promises that he had made to their fathers. And so we see also throughout the book of Deuteronomy that God loves his people because of his limitless love for them and not their obedience toward them, toward him. And then later in the New Testament, we see even more clearly that God loved and chose his people before the foundation of the world, that they would be holy and that he predestined them for salvation. Thus, uh, the, base, uh, the people's turning to God was not the initial move in their salvation. They did not seek God first. God instead sought them. God always pursues us, and we turn to God in repentance and faith. God's mercy is magnified in our repentance and his pardoning, and we see then that the basis of God's love for us and for his people is God himself. The next thing we see is the extent of God's mercy. When the people turn to the Lord, the Lord pardons them and regathers them. And notice that the Lord is not hindered 
by their distance from the promised land or the severity of their sin. God underscores the greatness of his grace through the phrase, quote, the uttermost parts of heaven, which is found in verse 4. Later in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 9, Nehemiah also uses this language of the uttermost parts of heaven. And what Moses and Nehemiah are getting at is that God's mercy far surpasses our ability to comprehend it. In other words, we can't out God. God's mercy is never ending, and it's new every morning. And we see from this passage, too, then, is that and what's very important and key for us to understand as Christians and, at, for, and for the non-Christians in this room as well, is that all truly penitent people will receive pardon and blessing from the Lord. Notice here that there's nothing that can separate us from God's love if we come to him humbly through Christ. No matter how many times uh, people have turned away from God, if they come to him in repentance, God promises to receive them. And so it's helpful to ask ourselves this morning, do you question God's ability or desire to save you? Friend, in this passage, we see God's grace is greater than our sin. And no matter your background, uh, your previous offenses, or your previous rejections of God's invitations, if you turn to the Lord, you will receive pardon. This is the beautiful truth we find in this passage. Christian, do you doubt God's commitment to you? God will never turn back on his promises. God's heart for his people does not change. In this passage, we see that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. We see in verse 1 that God used the punishments that they suffered to bring them back to himself. And we see that God desires to bring his people to himself. The next thing we see in this passage is that God's mercy does not stop at bringing the people back to the promised land and forgiving their sins. He promises to give them a new heart so that they will never abandon him again. This blessing is the greatest of all blessings mentioned in this passage. And structurally, uh, we can view verse 6 as the center of the passage. So it's possible that we can understand verse 6 as the center. So everything is kind of focused on this blessing of the new heart that God promises to give to his people. The gift of the new heart is described as circumcision. And this is an important covenantal word. It first appears in Genesis 17. There, God commands Abraham to circumcise every male born to him. And this removal of the foreskin was a symbol of their relationship to God. And within Israel, although the men were circumcised, it did not mean that they were inherently, um, by, by being circumcised, right with God. In fact, we see later on in the prophets, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 25, for example, that God uh, uh, warns those who are outwardly circumcised only, but not inwardly circumcised, that they need to turn to God in repentance. Uh, the next thing we see here, too, uh, is uh, the sphere of God's mercy. So we, see, we notice that God's mercy extends to every sphere of the Israelites' lives. He blesses their families, their labor, their health, and their possessions. God's mercy is all-encompassing. And in the Old Testament, God used wealth and outward blessing to distinguish the Israelites from the surrounding nations and to visually represent God's goodness to the people. This is not so different from the visuality of the sacrificial system uh, that you find uh, written about in uh, Leviticus, for example. And the scope of God's mercy shows his heart towards his people. 
God delights in his people and in their welfare. God desires to distinguish his people from the other nations. And note that in verse 7, for example, the nations who the Lord used to punish Israel for their sins will suffer the same punishment that Israel endured. And we see this language elsewhere in the Bible that God desires to make a distinction between those who are righteous and follow him and those who, who don't know him. However, an, a, an important caveat for us today. Um, uh, today, God's mercy does not primarily express itself through outward blessing, such as good health or wealth. And these are not bad things, but they are not uniquely signs of God's mercy toward a person. It's possible to abound in these areas but be separated from the Lord. God's blessings are found in Christ, as we see in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. And as Christians, we should seek to understand more of God's blessings that God has given to us in Christ. And to go back to Ephesians, Paul himself prays this very thing for Christians. And so we should also look forward to the consummation of our salvation when we finally uh, receive all of these blessings that we have now in part. And uh, just as a brief aside, sometimes in this life, uh, the wicked abound in material blessings and health, and the righteous seem to suffer. And this should not shake our confidence in God or our faith. Of course, it's normal to, why, to, to wonder why the wicked flourish and the righteous suffer. There's a whole book uh, in the Bible written on this very thing in the book of Job. Uh, there was Psalm 73 as well. But we must not stop here, however. We must look with eyes of faith in Christ who reigns on his throne. The next thing we see about this passage is the purpose of God's mercy. And we see that the purpose of God's mercy uh, uh, has several facets. The first is that the people would dwell in God's presence. The people will live in the land God promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This has always been God's design. He desires to dwell among his people. In the Garden of Eden, God dwelt with Adam and Eve. In the wilderness, he guided and protected the people by fire and cloud. And he, his presence resided in the temple. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, God says that his people will dwell with him forever. And the promises of Deuteronomy 30 find their ultimate fulfillment in the coming age, which we will discuss in a moment. And we know that these promises have yet to be fully uh, fulfilled. Uh, after the Babylonian exile, there were comparatively few Jews who returned to Jerusalem. And so although the, the prophets kind of viewed this as a... Uh, a partial fulfillment of these promises in Deuteronomy. It wasn't the final fulfillment. Nehemiah also mourned the Israelite status in their homeland after exile. He says this in Nehemiah 9:36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. At that time, the, the, they lamented the beauty and the size of the new temple compared to the Solomonic temple. As they compared the temple, they knew that the new construction did not compare to the former building. And so in Ezra 3.12, it's recorded that the people who were there before the, the exile and who had returned to the land wept as they compared these two uh, buildings. Several hundred years later, the Jews were again scattered due to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. And today, the nation of Israel does not equate to God's people. God's people are those who are united to him by faith in Christ. And so the scriptures are pointing us to something better than land. God promises us a new creation where we will dwell with him forever. There will be no fear of exile because we will be completely free from sin. The next purpose of God's mercy is that we would walk in his ways. God shows his mercy to us so that we might walk in his ways. In verse 6, this is the purpose of God circumcising the people's hearts. 
so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And God desires that his people emulate him by living holy lives. And six times the people in Deuteronomy are said to be holy. So although this word does not occur in this chapter, the idea is apparent. God's people are to be consecrated to him. They are to live according to his covenantal stipulations. And God's forgiven people should honor him with their lives by walking in his ways. In fact, throughout the scriptures, we see that this is the mark of God's people, holiness. So now, as we end, you might be wondering what this passage from Deuteronomy means for us today as Christians. I've tried to draw out some implications for us, such as the necessity of repentance and hoping in God's mercy. However, more fundamentally, we need to see how God or how Christ has established a new covenant with his blood and secured the blessings of that covenant for us. We need to see how the old covenant relates to us today as Christians. And we need to see that all of scripture is Christian scripture and that we can and should uh, read and apply it to our lives. In other, ways, we, uh, in other words, we shouldn't be uh, red letter Christians or uh, New Testament Christians. We should be whole Bible Christians. Um, uh, because all of uh, God's word is inspired and given to us for our instruction. Uh, Moses and the later Old Testament writers looked ahead to a new covenant. It was clear that they were not experiencing the blessings promised in Deuteronomy 28. Instead, they were experiencing the curses of the covenant. And they knew despite their predicament, God's mercy would triumph and his faithfulness to his promises was unfaltering. But the question is, how would all these things come together? How would they culminate? Later, Old Testament prophets expanded on Moses' words in Deuteronomy 30. Throughout the prophets, we find promises that God will once again gather his people, such as Isaiah 56, 8. Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesy of a day when all of God's people will know him and have his law written on their hearts in Jeremiah 31 or Ezekiel 36, which are very beautiful passages about the new covenant. Uh, the Old Testament then ends without the final fulfillment of the prophecies found throughout it. The people had returned to the land, and they had begun building another temple. However, they were in a greatly diminished condition, and the temple did not match its former glory. So the question is, is this all that God has promised? And of course, it's not. The Gospels begin in a, a really remarkable way. Uh, Mark connects uh, Jesus' arrival as the beginning of a new exodus. And you'll recall that at the beginning of the, 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 the Ten Commandments, God uh, mentions the exodus as sort of the foundation of the beginning of this covenant with his people. So in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, he says this. He goes, And it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In this quotation, Mark weaves together elements from Exodus, Isaiah, and Malachi to invoke the imagery of the Exodus and connect the Lord here with Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is um, the, the incarnation of the Lord in the Old Testament. So when you see uh, the, uh, the Lord uh, in the small capital letters in the Old Testament, that is God's covenantal name. And Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. So Jesus is none other than the Lord, the God of Israel, who has come to deliver his people and fulfill the promises in the Old Testament. He will uh, perform a new and better exodus. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus provides more clarity on this exodus and its implications. The original context of this quotation uh, uh, is of Isaiah chapter 40, 
verse, chapter 40, verse 3. And the original context of Isaiah 40, of chapters 40 to 55, is generally considered to be addressed to the Israelites in the Babylonian exile, even though Isaiah was written about 100 years before, so it was a prophetic speech. God would not leave the Israelites in exile, but would powerfully deliver them and return them to the promised land, just as he had delivered the Israelites from Egypt. However, as we have seen, the return from exile was not the final fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30. As Mark makes clear, there is an even greater exodus. This can only be accomplished, or, or God must deliver us, not from the power of Babylon or Egypt. God must deliver us from the power of Satan and bring us into his heavenly kingdom. And this can only be accomplished through the death of Jesus, which he describes as initiating a new covenant. Jesus himself also describes his death as a new exodus in Luke chapter 9, verse 31. In other words, it is through Jesus' death that his people will be delivered from Satan and brought into his kingdom. And as we saw before, Israel's exodus from Egypt began the Sinai covenant. At the Last Supper, Christ said, For this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus taught that his death would establish a new covenant that secured eternal salvation for all who trust in him. His death also secured irrevocable spiritual blessings for his people. Among the blessings he has secured for his people are a new heart. This is the promise of Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Justification, adoption, and final glorification. All of God's covenant people have God's spirit, and those without God's spirit are not God's people. Thus, physical circumcision is no longer of consequence, but spiritual circumcision is the only thing that's necessary, and this is the thing that God has provided for us in Christ. Thus, the promises mentioned in our passage have been secured by Christ for us. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of these promises that we find in Deuteronomy 30. And as a result of this new covenant he established, believers are no longer under the regulations of the Mosaic covenant. This covenant has passed away. We are no longer under this as a covenant. Instead, we should read this covenant and uh, seek to see how this is uh, fulfilled in Christ and thus uh, mediated to us through Christ. So oftentimes people make a mistake of approaching these Old Testament texts uh, apart from Christ. And when you go about reading the Old Testament uh, apart from Christ, you go down uh, a very wrong way of reading these scriptures. And so I would encourage you to seek to read these Christologically and, fi- and to understand how Christ is the fulfillment of this covenant and how he mediates these promises of the covenant to us. And as the author of Hebrews argues in chapter 8, uh, uh, he says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So not only do the Old Testament authors I've mentioned previously uh, suggest that this old covenant is no longer uh, in effect, Mark himself, Jesus himself, talks about the initiation of a new covenant. And here later, in the book of Hebrews, we see also further evidence that this covenant has passed away, and now in Christ we are under a new covenant. Thus this morning, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have a new heart. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The sins that defined you before Christ have been forgiven, and sin no longer has any power over you. You are now able to resist sin and live a holy life. 
God's mighty power has decisively delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and secured eternal salvation for you. Yet we are still waiting for the fulfillment of another promise. We will not fully return to the land until we are in the new heavens and the new earth. There we will then uh, there, there will be no longer a threat of exile or banishment at that time from God's presence because we uh, will be fully glorified. So if you're a Christian, set your heart on this hope this morning and live in light of God's grace to you in Christ. And if you do not know the Lord this morning, come to him. We see that God is willing to receive all who come to him by faith and, and repentance. Now let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these beautiful words of Scripture. Thank you that they reveal to us your heart for your people, your boundless mercy, and your holiness. Father, we need you. We need you to stir in us a greater affection for you and hope in you. Help us to delight ourselves in you, Father. And we pray that those who do not know you would come to you in repentance and faith. And thank you so much that you promise to receive all who come to you in Christ. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.